0: Hello everyone, welcome to Sabbath School Gems, where each week we showcase key concepts from this week's Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath School lesson. Well, hello everyone, welcome. This is Lesson 8 for the third quarter of 2022 for Sabbath, August 20, and it's titled Seeing the Invisible, and it's from the quarterly In the Crucible with Christ. Now, we've got a lot to cover in this lesson. There's a lot of good stuff in here, a lot of gems. So I'll just start out with Sunday's lesson brings up the topic about doubting God's goodness. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, the reason why I think we doubt God's goodness or the most of the incidences when we, when we or other people do, it's usually because we're attributing to God things that are not from God. We like to read this text, Romans 8.28, where it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And that is one of the texts that I think is the most misinterpreted, as well as the one that mentions not being tempted beyond what we're capable of handling. I think we misinterpret these. And this one in particular, because it says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And so automatically, when bad things are happening or, you know, things are not working out, we think, well, either we don't love God, but we know we do love God. So then, well, God must not like, love us. And that's kind of what our brain goes to. And I think that's why a lot of people end up doubting God, because they think things aren't working out and they're doing what's right. But this text in Romans, this whole passage is talking about the end. It's talking about all things work out together for good in the end. And it's talking about a future time. In fact, if we read it, it mentions sufferings in the present. I mean, just read Romans 8, verses 18 and 19. It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So even this passage is talking about sufferings in this present time And then when it talks about the glory, it's talking about it shall be. It's a future tense. And then just the next verse says, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So we see this waiting, this future. It's not right now. So this very passage is not talking about all things working together for good right now and in every second. It's talking about in the end, it's going to be made right. And so I think if we keep that in context, it'll help us not be attributing all these things to God and doubting his goodness. He is seeing th- things that we see. He doesn't like what's going on probably more than, than we are. He's suffering for the sufferings that are happening in this world. But this is talking about the future, that he will. He, he has a plan and these things are playing into that plan. And, you know, maybe battles will be lost, but the war will be won in the end. This is kind of where this idea of hope comes in. Hope is for things that are not seen, for things that might be in the future. Specifically, this hope for this final atonement. I'm just going to read Romans 8, just going on a little bit from there. So Romans eight twenty three to 25, it says, Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting, there's that word again, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. By redemption of our body, that's the final atonement. It says, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance this is talking about a hope for things that are not seen. The title of this lesson is Seeing the Invisibles. It's keeping that hope for things that we can't see, but we do see it to some degree. And we'll see what this actually means. Let's go on to Tuesday's lesson, The Power of the Resurrection. And the lesson study says that we'll be resurrected and that we'll have this power because Jesus has a power because now he's sitting at the right hand of God and that this power is available to us today. I'm, I'm just kind of taking snippets of what the lesson said he said. But this is a little bit confusing because when we talk about, well, we'll have the power that Jesus has. He's sitting at the right hand of God. And we're, we have this power now. We know that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. But it does seem a little confusing because it seems like it's suggesting that we'll take on that same position, that same position of power that Christ has. But this is not true. Christ has a very unique position at the right hand of God. The real power in Jesus' death is not that we are going to be sitting at the right hand of God, and not even that he is. Yes, he's going to be sitting there with power as a king, but he's also going to be sitting there, and he's not going to be sitting, I think he's going to be ministering as our high priest. Remember Melchizedek, who's both a king and a priest combo, and that's the role that Jesus takes. It's unique only to him. You know, there was only one high priest. When Aaron was about to die, they appointed his son Eleazar as the high priest because there's only one high priest. There's lots of priests, and they're all ministering, and they're all transferring sins into sanctuary. But the, only the high priest on that Day of Atonement, that once a year, it was only the high priest, and there was only one, they would go in and minister on that Day of Atonement. They would bring in that final atonement and the final cleansing Of the sanctuary. So that's that redemption of our body, if we want to use the wording that's in Romans. So that's what it's talking about. And that's the hope that we can look forward to. And this is what is stated in Hebrews, which we just studied. It's about this hope, the hope in the role that Jesus is now taking. We can read about that in Hebrews 9. And, and also in this chapter, we can see the difference between the new covenant. See, the first one is, it's talking about the first, it's talking about the earthly sanctuary. The earthly sanctuary with the fleshly ordinances, sacrifices, that couldn't bring in this redemption of our body. It's only the true heavenly day of atonement that does that. So let's read in Hebrews 9. It, it starts out describing that, that earthly sanctuary and the pattern of the heavenly. So, Hebrews 9, starting in verse 1, it says, Then indeed, even the first, and it says covenant, that word is not in the original text, but even the first had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So it's clearly talking about the earthly tabernacle. And it says, And behind the second veil the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all That's where the priest went in once a year to make that atonement. Yeah. And then if you go down to verse seven, it says, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. You know, that's because he had to offer sins for himself before he went in to make atonement for the rest of the people. But that was that final day of atonement. That's when the sins were actually transferred out of the sanctuary. They were put on the scapegoat and, and removed. So that was the, that's when the real atonement happened. All the rest of the time, the people were getting cleared, the sins were being transferred, but they weren't really taken away. Now, if we keep reading in Hebrews 9, just going down to verse 11, it describes how Jesus is now the high priest. It says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more? And that's That's the bulls and goats and the the ashes of a heifer and the sprinkling the unclean. You know, there were certain things that were done when you had defiled yourself, like you touched a dead body or something. You got leprosy and you were recovered from leprosy. You would do this certain purifying. So that's what it's talking about, purifying the flesh. But it says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So that is who is bringing in the real atonement. And notice how it's cleanse your conscience from dead works. That's important to serve the living God. When we are having this guilt and when we are having this separation from God, it's hard to serve him. That is the whole reason why these sins were transferred whenever it came into the consciousness of the person. They were, they were repenting of sins that they initially didn't even know they were committing. But when it came into their consciousness, that's when they went and got cleansed so that they could be cleansed of consciousness from dead works to serve the living God so that they could continue to get close to God and serve him and walk in his ways. But we know that all those earthly processes were not what was really doing it. Hebrews 9, going on, 23 Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, that's the earthly sanctuary, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should suffer himself often, as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, so that day of atonement was every year, once a year. But he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. If he went every year, it would be every year. But no, now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So we know that that's what he his role is, and that's a one-time role. The Day of Atonement, even though it's it's once a year, so yeah, if you look back in time and you see it's happening every year, it looks like, wow, there's a lot of Day of Atonement. But really, if you follow God's calendar, it's the whole year is like a microcosm of time, of our existence on this planet. And so you see this this time, this calendar that you're progressing through, and the Day of Atonement, of all the 365 days or so in the year, that was just a one point in time, one hour or however long it took. So we know that that day is showing us how this is a one-time event. And we, we read it here in Hebrews, it's telling us. So the real thing that's happening in heaven, that, that final atonement is a one-time thing. And Jesus is the one sitting at the right hand of, of God isn't one that's ministering that. And remember, he's particularly suited to this role because two things. First, he's spotless. He doesn't need to get purified like Aaron did. Hebrews seven twenty six for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins as then for the people's, because they, they would have to offer the bull. First, for their own sins, the, the high priest would, and then he could go in and and offer it for the people. For he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints his high priest men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. So it's just saying the high priests in the earthly sanctuary are just men and they have weaknesses and things. In fact, they had to be really careful because they didn't do things right. They could, it was going into the the most holy place. They didn't have the incense and they didn't do everything right as, um, even just as priests, because look at Aaron's sons, they would run the risk of getting obliterated. So it, it's a big responsibility, that high priest. But Jesus is well-suited for that because he is not defiled. He doesn't have to offer that pre-sacrifice before he ministers for us. And then the second thing is because he's merciful. He's walked in our shoes. Hebrews four fifteen says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So for these two reasons, he is Qualified to do that, and we can rest on that that assurance. And you know it's worth reading just the previous text and the subsequent text to this. So there's Hebrews 4:15, "For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but just before that it says, "Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So let us hold fast." That's like words of encouragement. And then right after that text, it says, Hebrews four sixteen. it says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this is important for us to, to realize this and to recognize him as high priest. Why? Because let us hold fast to our confession and let us come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain that mercy and find grace in time of need. Why is it, What is the whole purpose? You know, we're talking about in this lesson about the power, but what good does this power do? What good does it do to us to realize that Jesus is now sitting as our as our high priest? What what is the purpose of that? Well, it's because we can have this hope in the future, this hope in the future and atonement that it can give us hope today. Today it can affect our actions. Today it can. As Hebrews says, stir up love and good works. Hebrews ten twenty two 22 and 20 through 24 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. That's what that hope of that atonement is doing, sprinkling our hearts from an evil conscience and washing our bodies with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That's gonna happen. That atonement is going to happen. He's going to work that so that we can be joined to him, close together in his presence. And then Hebrews 10 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So it's so we can serve God, walk in his ways, and do these good works. Hebrews twelve twenty eight says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. This is the reason why that's important. This is what gives us a hope so we can be cleared of our, our conscience and we can serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's what we need to be doing today. And that's what this hope and this realization of what Jesus has done for us will let us do. And how is that manifested? Just go to the very next verse. So that was Hebrews 12:28. And then it starts in Hebrews 13, which there probably shouldn't even be a chapter difference there because it's really showing a demonstration of what does that mean to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear? What does that actually mean in our life? What's practical manifestation of that? Well, Hebrews 13, 1 through 9 tells us, it says, let brotherly love continue. Don't forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them those who are mistreated. And boy, we have a lot of people who are being mistreated right now who don't deserve it. People are in prison. People are being persecuted. People are being killed in other countries too. And it's, you know, our world is just getting really hostile to people that are any bit following what God wants. And, you know, they may be following it under different religions, but they're listening to God and they're hearing his voice and they are getting in trouble And they are becoming really mistreated. So our hearts should go out to these people. And as far as possible, we should be praying for them as if we're chained with them because they're going to come for us next. Um, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things that you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Remember those who roll over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, consider the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. So do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied by them. So this is practical things. And, you know, go into Hebrews and read. There's even more there. This is the fruit of what it means to accept that grace, to realize that atonement, to have that hope of that atonement someday. And without this faith, it really is impossible to work this way. This isn't my words. This is Hebrews 11.6. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if we're struggling and we're struggling to follow God and we're struggling to please God, it may be because we haven't fully realized and we don't fully embrace that he will clear us in the end that this atonement is sure and that he wants us as his. That's what should drive us that we diligently seek him, that he's a rewarder of those, that we do have a a better thing waiting for us, and that will keep us going. Now, we skipped over Monday's lesson because I think Sunday and Tuesday kind of flowed together. Monday is titled The Name of Jesus, and it's going by that John fourteen thirteen text where it says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. But I think to understand that text, we really need to go on and we need to read on the next verses there. It says, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And it goes on. The reason why I say we need to read that because it looks like whatever you ask in my name, I will do. It sounds like, like Jesus is, is a genie and you just go over there and rub the bottle and ask your wishes and they're granted. But that's not what it's saying. If you love me, keep my commandments. Why is it talking about that? Because to believe in God is to believe in Jesus. It says, you know, Jesus says, if you know me, you know the Father. And if you know him, then you've seen him. And Philip says, but we haven't seen him. Show us. Jesus replies, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he's saying, if you believe in God, believe in me. And that word believe really means doing the works that he does in a simplified version that's really what it's saying and that's why we see this if you love me keep my commandments if you believe me you'll love me if you love me keep my commandments John 14:15 if you love me keep my commandments and then also in John 14:21 he who has my commandments and keeps them it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him and Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, that's logos, and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Then that word logos is really the words from God. John 14:24. and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. But the world may know that I love the father and as the father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. This whole discourse is so that we can have the spirit of truth and act like Jesus. And if we have the spirit of truth, we'll be able to see that which is invisible to others. John fourteen seventeen says, The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This seeing, this believing in Jesus is really having that spirit of truth in us. And knowing Jesus and loving him and walking in his ways and walking in the ways of the Father, because if we see him, we see the Father. If we love him, we'll love the Father. And in seeing him, in that knowing him and seeing him, because if we know him, we see him, then we will have peace. John fourteen seventeen says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So this is how we find this peace. But I think when we just look at it as the name of Jesus and, oh, we just pray in the name of Jesus, that doesn't really explain what this text is all about. This text is more than just an intellectual belief and tagging on some words at the end of your prayer. This is really talking about having that love for Jesus and wanting to be like the Father and seeing the Father in Jesus And that belief is really being like him, being like Jesus, being like the Father. And so I just wanted to point this out because it wasn't really pointed out well in the lesson study. So I want to move on to Wednesday's lesson. And the lesson asked the question of why don't we come to God and give him our concerns? The title is called To Carry All Our Worry. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking... Yeah, do we wait until we're desperate? And I was thinking about just myself because I can't answer for anybody else. I don't know why other people don't come to God. But I think the two main reasons why I don't bring things to God when I should is one thing is I, I think that the problems are too minor. I mean, we're talking about an awesome God. Do I want to ask him to help me find my car keys or things like that? A lot of times I, I wonder, I struggle with it. Like, is this really important? Do I have to go with him? He gave me a brain. You know, he, he gave me a lot of things that I have that I can make decisions. Do I have to go to him with every little thing? So I feel a need to handle things myself as much as I can because it would be, be like respect. You try to do things on your own because you don't want to bother God with minor things. So that's the one reason why I think that I don't go to God. And then the, the other reason is because usually it's because things I feel are too much my fault. And I think this is the syndrome that Adam and Eve had when they hid in the garden. And this is where I think it's really dangerous because this is where our pride gets in the way and our stubbornness And we're either too proud to admit that we're wrong or that we're doing something wrong or we're too stubborn to want to change. And usually I think it's more the stubbornness to change that we don't realize because sometimes when we do things or we're doing things over and over again, usually we say, oh, I just don't have the willpower. I don't have the strength or whatever. But usually that's not the case at all. Usually it's because subconsciously we're making a choice. We're weighing options and somehow that option is seeming attractive to us. I think what helps us when we come to God and we go to him, he can help us uncover those competing reasons because they're usually, I think they're usually just Satan trying to deceive us and they blow these things out of proportion. So they look like, oh, well, if I do this thing, I'm getting these, all these advantages When rationally we look at it and we say, "No, I shouldn't be doing this," but subconsciously we're thinking, "Well, if I do this, it feels good, or I get this, or I get that, or I don't have to deal with this." And so we have all these things that go through our head that often are not aware of. And I find, at least this is in my situation, when we go to God, He can uncover those and show us how those things are not right and. And we're not thinking right. And I think that that's why it's so important to go to him, even when it's hard for us to go to him for to, for help, especially in those cases. It's something that we know that we should change. And we might be afraid to change, but we should. that's when we should go. And how do we go to him? I think the best way to go to him is just that pattern in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I think this pattern is good because it it works in almost all cases. Because if we're afraid of asking God something, it's still best to go to him because he can tell us what we need to ask for. And I think when we come with this prayer, this prayer where we humble himself and just say, okay, give us what I need right now. You know what I need this day. Just give me what I need this day. Clear me of my sins. Show me my sins and clear me and let me come with a clear conscience. And then he can open up. Instead of just coming to him and say, okay, I want to ask for this new car. Should I buy this new car or something some question like that, if we come to him and we just say, acknowledge that he is God and reverence him and really come with this holy fear and humility, I think he usually will show us what we need to ask for. Because a lot of times what we're thinking we need to ask him is not what we really need to ask him. When I think of this coming to God and being afraid and stuff, I think of Jacob, you know, when he came to Esau and and Esau was, they, you know, they. he sent men ahead and they came back and said, well, yeah, Esau's coming to you and he's got 400 men. And and Jacob was like afraid and he's all distressed and he's, he's just struggling. And then it says when he was left alone, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, no, I won't let you go unless you bless me. At that point, Jacob realized that, his fear and his problem, which he thought was Esau, he thought it was Esau coming out with all these men and oh no, he's going to kill us. But then he realized that his real problem was etern- internal. His real problem were his sins. And he didn't feel that forgiveness. He didn't feel that cleansing for his sins. Sins of deceiving, that he deceived and took the birthright and and deceived and, and, and got that blessing from his father under deceit. God was going to give it to him anyway, but he he took it upon himself with his mom coaching to do that deception. And he didn't really feel that cleansing. And I think this was his struggle. And so I think when he was there alone and everyone left him alone and he's there with his thoughts and with God, I think that's when the angel was coming to him and really making him realize that his problem was with God. And he didn't want him to leave without blessing him. He felt that presence of God and he knew it was there. He blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel because he said, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Not only was his life preserved, his life was was given to him. (laughs) He got a new name, but he really had a new attitude and he felt that forgiveness. I really believe that his struggle was with accepting God's forgiveness. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about that power. The power is to feel forgiven and to move on with our lives and get close to God, not in this fear of punishment, but in this freedom to serve God. Sometimes we think we want to come to God and say, should, should I do this or should I do that or should I not do this? What we really should be asking God is, is how can I, do this in a way to bring glory to your name. Because sometimes when we see a choice and we say, okay, I have the choice between this or this, you know, I can either go this direction or I can go this direction. A lot of times both choices are right and both choices are wrong at the same time. We know that God can make even bad situations good. So even if we choose the wrong choice, God can still make it good. Now we want to use our minds and we want to consult with people that we trust and we want to do all those things to make decisions. But in the end, we don't have to have this fear that we might make the horrible wrong decision because God can make it good. But what we do have to be in fear of is if we're not willing to be pliable and let him lead us that even the right choice, even if we make the better of the choices, it can still go wrong. So I think a lot of times it's more important to come to God and ask Him what attitude we should have and to be willing to change our attitude and then make the decision as best as we can and not have this fear that it's either it's either or because He can make both situations good and we can make both choices bad by our approach. This is the way I think it's good to come to God with the worries that we have. Just let Him lead us into what question we should be asking and what changes we should be making in our life. Okay. Now Thursday's lesson is titled still faithful when God cannot be seen. This one I'm not going to go over the texts that are brought out in the lesson study because I'm wondering why they didn't bring out certain things. Well, we already talked a lot about Job. We've already been studying him for the last couple of weeks, but he, is one who remained very faithful he was faithful even though he couldn't see things i mean in his own words he says i have heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eye sees you so he was in this fog of whatever and he couldn't really see god clearly but he was faithful he knew what was right he wasn't gonna curse god and die and he wasn't gonna repent of sins that that he didn't even know about he remained faithful to God. And then when he saw this, he offered the prayer and praise to God. So I think he is a really good example of someone who's faithful when God cannot be seen. He's the poster child for this. Okay, but then I also think, when I think about this being faithful when God can't be seen, I think about that faith chapter in Hebrews. So we're going back to Hebrews again, but now in chapter 11, Starting verse 1, now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is really things that we can't see. So this is still faithful when we can't see things. That's what faith is. Faith is exactly that by definition. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And then it goes on. It talks about Abel. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Though which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. So we see Abel as an example. And then Enoch, verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So he pleased God, even though he couldn't see God, and then he didn't see death. Noah, by faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen. He didn't know there was going to be a flood. There was no floods before the earth catastrophically changed at the time of the flood. There's no way that Noah could have really understood the scope of what was going on before it happened. But yet he moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And then it goes on to Abraham, verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. They were just nomads. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was waiting for that city. He was living as a nomad. Isaac and Jacob were living as nomads. They were looking to this, this city, this promised city. And then Sarah, by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. She believed in that promise, and he, brought, he gave her a child because of her faith, and then, of course, it goes on to Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the people who took Jericho under Joshua's leadership. They had faith in and the, and the harlot Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. It mentions all those in Hebrews. And it says, none of these received the fullness of the promise in their life. They didn't, they didn't see this. They all were living and acting on faith, not having really seen and Hebrews 11:39 39 says, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. So why do we think we would receive the promise? These people didn't receive the promise, but they acted in faith. And when we think about, well, what what fueled their faith? I think it's really good for us to go back and read these stories and just keep reading them and rereading them because there's so much that comes out when you read them over and over, you really understand their growth process. A lot of these things, especially Abraham and, and Moses, and you see them growing, you see them growing in the faith, and it's an example for us. In a nutshell, it's their trust in God and their true desire to be with him, to be close to him, very close to him, and in a better place. They were longing for a better place. Hebrews eleven fourteen says, For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I hope that we are all seeing and longing for that homeland. I think that is what can give us the peace and it can give us the encouragement, especially as things are really heating up in this world. And I think they're just going to get worse and worse and maybe even really bad for some of us that are studying this lesson study right now. But we need to hold on to these patriarchs and prophets and these sons and daughters of God that went before us. And we have their stories. We have the Bible, which is such a precious gift. We can have this assurance of the atonement, which Jesus provides for us, they didn't even have that. They had it, but they didn't see it as much as we can see it. That assures us and lets us live as he wants us to live and to walk in his ways. So I, that's my hope for everyone listening to this, and even for those who are not listening, that, that we will all be longing for that homeland, that we will be grabbing onto that hope of that day when our sins will all be put away. They'll be completely cleansed and we can come into the presence of God and we can come into that holy city, that beautiful holy city, and we will never more have to live on a planet like this. I hope this encourages you and I'm looking forward to next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Sabbath School Gems. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word to others. Comments and questions can be sent to us at SabbathSchoolGems at gmail.com. Bye for now!